0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Daniel Parkinson, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Glad to have you on. You and I have been talking. We thought we'd sit down today and have a conversation with with the listeners of this episode and and maybe go into delving into a little bit of, of the biology and the research behind uh, homosexuality and in those who would who would classify themselves as as lgbt and wanted to do that certainly maybe with a specific kind of angle towards speaking to to parents or siblings or uh, friends or maybe even you know church leaders or church members who who interact with these our, our gay brothers and sisters in the church, and and maybe to better understand just bits and pieces of this issue that maybe would help us all to to have a more rounded understanding of what's all going on here. And and before we jump into that, Daniel, I wonder you know the listeners, this is your first time a Mormon discussion. I wonder if you might take a couple minutes and just share a brief bio with the listeners so they've got a feel for for who you are.
1: Yes, okay. Um, I'm Daniel Parkinson. I'm originally from Utah. I was raised LDS. Um, I'm one of the stereotypical um, fam- multi-generational Mormon families I came from, and I um, had a normal LDS upbringing and went on a mission. To attend a BYU. I went to medical school and then trained to be a psychiatrist. I also came out. I'm gay man. Um, And I stopped participating in the church when I was younger, in my 20s, and I have had a great life as a psychiatrist, um, but I decided to get involved in activism for the cause of LGBT LDS people, and so over the past few years, you might say I've been an activist trying to help the um, diminish the suffering that goes on and the despair among LGBT Mormons, and... The may the biggest activity I've been involved in I've been involved with a few including Gay Mormon Stories and the a blog called No More Strangers, but probably the most important um work I was involved in was a campaign called I'll Walk With You, which was an opportunity for me to um me and the team of excellent videographers that we pulled together to um interview Mormon parents who have LGBT children, and we wanted to put out role models of how to deal with that issue in a loving way, and we really have some amazing active LDS-believing parents who did an excellent job of giving a message of how to love and support without compromising your LDS beliefs. And so I've been a really big advocate of trying to learn how to deal with this issue without necessarily trying to argue for changing your religious beliefs, um, but trying to do it within the context of being a Mormon and using Christ-like love to minister to the LGBT people in your care, most specifically your children. So that's where I come from, but I became informed on the issue, both by being a gay man with an LDS background, where I had a pretty broad education on Mormonism, and like most of us do, but also by being a psychiatrist where I was really able to learn about the biological factors that go into homosexuality coming from a perspective of understanding the various realms that that help explain this, most specifically embryology, neurodevelopment, and other biological research that goes into how our brain develops, which is so essential to understanding homosexuality. So that's my... More, less than brief intro of myself.
0: And and I appreciate that, Daniel. And, and I'm grateful for the chance to sit down and talk. And there's, there's a lot of different tangents on this issue that are running through my mind as I, as I think of different directions that we could go in. I, I think at least we should take a moment in, and, and maybe I can just share a personal experience of mine. When I, when I was serving as a bishop, I walked into the chapel one day uh, early before sacrament had even started, and there was only another couple in the in the chapel at the time, and they were having a conversation with each other. They were husband and wife. They were a little older. They were in their their late sixties, and they were talking about this very issue of of homosexuality, and it was obvious from their conversation that they still held firmly onto the belief that being gay, that having those feelings is a choice that one chooses. What gender they're going to be attracted to. And, and so I walked up to the two of them just listening in and, and began to kind of, you know, enter the conversation and, and begin asking them some questions and, and just throwing out the idea again, kind of this framework you're setting up, which is just to, to get us all kind of asking questions and thinking about these things shared with them, you know, some questions in my perspective that, that perhaps this wasn't Wasn't a choice. And and again, I firmly hold, you know, the ground that, that it's not, but maybe speak for a moment about some of these assumptions that we hold, that we hold dearly onto within, within our faith that, that perhaps it would be healthy just to take a step back and, and to maybe examine if that makes sense.
1: Yes. And I think that's um, kind of a critical concept in people's minds is, is this a choice? You know, I hate to get into semantics and have a meta discussion about that. But, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, well, what do we really mean by is it a choice to start with? And I think that is why discussing the biology of it is helpful. Because if we realize what sets our brains up um, to have a particular predisposition then we can kind of know, well, what do we mean by is it a choice and can we say yes or no? But I think what most people used to think about it being a choice, we can kind of definitively say no, it's not. But there are certainly choices that are out there and they're um, – so I think we want to kind of break it down and say, well, what exactly is does it mean to have a choice and then what what is realistic when it comes to choosing – based on what we know about our biology. And I hope that made sense.
0: It does. And and I would throw out, right, we, we there's so many it's really easy to get caught up in kind of bunching all this together, but the reality is, yes, to some extent we all certainly have agency and we can certainly certainly make outward behavioral choices. The very first question I want to ask you because as we have this conversation tonight, some people may be asking whether some of this is genetic but there seems to be the term biological that seems to be more often used in this discussion versus genetic. Can, maybe just for the listeners, is there, is there an easy way to distinguish what we, what we mean or how we're parsing this out when we are talking about certain factors being biological versus that there is a genetic causation going on? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'll just give a little soapbox. When people
1: say, "Is it biological? Is it genetic? Is it natural?" Um, those are such imprecise ways of looking at this that uh, you know, if you get a little bit of depth of understanding, those questions become kind of meaningless. But um, what we should say is, you know, what part of this are we born with? What part? What genetic factors play a role? What environmental factors play a role? Um, what choices play a role? And how does it all fit together? Because it's really all of the above. It's, you know, your your orientation ends up being all of this. It's it is genetic. It is environmental. It is biological, and it's both natural and unnatural, depending on how you define the words. So, right, right.
0: So let's jump into, I know one of the areas that, that you like talking about and I think are important to setting up this conversation. Maybe, maybe take us back into when, when, you know, when the fetus is developing and and it starts off as an embryo and in this development process, maybe give us kind of a surface level view of, of some of the things that are going on here. And then maybe we can jump into some of the specifics of, of some of these, you know, factors and what the research has shown and some of the studies, some of the things that have come out of that.
1: Yeah, I'd love to take that approach because really, um, everyone thinks that it's such a mystery as to why there's some people are gay, and what the reality is is it's not that big of a mystery. We the science has come so far that we really, truly, basically understand why people are gay or straight. It's just that not the general public doesn't realize this, but basically any scientist who kind of studies and understands a few realms of Biology, or embryology, or neurobiology is going to understand that yes, um, we do have a basic outline. There's still a lot of important unanswered questions, but these are kind of questions that fill in the blanks. So let me just start from the beginning. You know, what makes a person gay or straight? I mean, the and I want to point out from the very beginning that on almost all of these issues, we can also say what makes a person have a certain gender identity. I think it's helpful just to realize that it works in a very similar way from the standpoint of the brain that our we have a sexual orientation that helps us decide which gender we tend to be attracted to. And we also have a gender identity. We have a personal feeling that's you might say is programmed into our brain as to what gender we are, whether we're male or female. And the... They evolve in sort of the same way in each individual. And so, I'm, even though I'm gonna mostly talk about sexual orientation, virtually everything I'm saying can also apply to our gender identity, whether we're trans or cis. Let me just explain those terms. Cis is what most of you are. If you're a woman who was identified as a woman from, by your parents when you're born and you still feel like you're a woman, then you are a cis woman. And if you're a man who was believed, you know, the parents believed he was a man when he was born and feels like he's a man as an adult, then you're a cis man. So most people are cis, but the people who feel like they're identified incorrectly are trans. And so that's what trans people and the most famous recent example is Caitlyn Jenner. So um, the very fundamental thing that we need to understand is that we have our, g- g- our gender is determined basically for most people by their chromosomes, their, whether they're XY or XX, and I shouldn't say gender, this is our biologic sex, so that was already a mistake. Our biologic sex is determined by whether we have an XY chromosome versus an XX chromosome, and this is really interesting because it really turns out to be the Y chromosome that makes the difference, because both both fem- males and females have an X chromosome. So this is the most fundamental thing. There's a Y chromosome that really changes a fetus from female to male. Every single fetus starts out identical. For the first eight weeks of gestation, they're exactly the same. The only thing different is a little bit of DNA inside them. And at that point, this gene, which is, I'm sorry, this chromosome, which is the Y chromosome starts to kick in if there's a Y chromosome present, which it would be in all males. So the Y chromosome is this little tiny gene, this little tiny chromosome that really has several not very important genes, but it's got one super important gene called the SRY. And if that's present, it basically starts acting around eight weeks. It turns on testosterone production, and when testosterone production gets turned on, then you start to get a male development. And the female, what would have become female organs, those just kind of wither away, and you get male organs and male genitalia. And this is all driven by the testosterone that was really started because of this SRY gene on the Y chromosome. If that's absent, then uh, the fetus will just go on with a female development. And so that's what gets it all started. But we all have to remember that every single one of us has the full potential and has every single gene to become either a fully developed male or a fully developed female. So, you know, we all have genes for breasts. We all have genes for penises. We all have genes for every single male and female structure. These aren't found on the sex chromosomes. Those are found throughout the genome so it's really an amazing thing that we all have this potential to become either gender right but it all comes down to this one little factor the sry factor and obviously i'm simplifying a little bit but that's the basic idea so what is really important is that once this testosterone production starts then it starts working on the body as you know and we and it's sort of a generally an all-or-nothing thing. You either develop as a male or a female. There's just a few people, a very low percentage, who kind of turn out in between male or female because of different factors that might not make it quite so binary. But the vast majority of people develop genitalia or basically a body of either a male or a female. And that's super fixed. And once it gets going down that route, nothing's going to stop it. But what's really important when it comes to our brains is that we also have a sexual differentiation in our brains. And this also happens during gestation. So I like to say we have lots of apparatuses in our brains and it's sort of like your iPhone. If you look at your iPhone, you have all these little icons and one of them is your maps and one of them is your um, browser and one of them is your notes. Well, each of those little apps takes little different parts of the little computer in your iPhone, puts pulls from what it needs, and it creates this apparatus. And our brain has a parallel thing. So we have an apparatus in our brain for language. We have an apparatus in our brain for walking. We've got an apparatus in our brain for throwing. We've got an apparatus in our brain for just about everything. We have apparatuses that control our interests, our desires, our appetites. There's just bunches of these apparatuses, but they're all made up of little regions of the brains throughout the brain that all kind of connect together and to make that thing work, just like on your iPhone app. So to simplify things, I'm going to say, yeah, we have a language apparatus, and it turns out, well, yes, we have a sexual orientation apparatus, and we have a gender identity apparatus. Well, it turns out that the brain and virtually every one of these apparatuses has some amount of sexual differentiation in other words it will develop in a way that's either more masculine or more feminine and virtually all of them will develop it based on the levels of the hormones either the androgens or the estrogens so if there's a high level of testosterone which most males will have then these apparatuses are going to evolve in a more masculine way but if there's not as much testosterone, but the feminine hormones are at play, then it will develop in a feminine way. So we'll get an outcome with these apparatuses that are more masculine or more feminine. And so that's a general term. But when it comes down to it, there is a lot more flexibility in our brains than in our bodies. So for any one person, they might end up, because of their genes and because of certain things going on during the pregnancy they might end up with some apparatuses that are feminized and some that are masculinized. In fact, every human will be that way. They're shown that there's not really characteristics that all males have or all females have, but everyone's a mosaic. So in a general way, we have a lot of traits in our brains that are more masculine or more feminine. And if you're a male, chances are... You have a higher percentage of them are more masculinized and less of them are feminized. And if you're a female, more of them are feminized and less are masculinized. But there's no exactness to it. But what's really important is that each of these areas, when they develop in each of these areas of the brain, there's a thing called a critical period. And during that critical period is where the, the root is set and so it's, might be only a short period of a few hours or a few days or a few weeks just depending on the area of the brain. And during that time, the levels of the hormones are going to impact whether it gets masculinized or feminized or something in between. So it also, it turns out then that that's the reason we might get kind of a mosaic, because it turns out that in the maternal environment, in the interuterine environment, there is a fluctuation in these hormone levels for different reasons. So there might be one day less testosterone because of maternal stress, or there might be more, or there might be other reasons that play a role. It might be that we have genes, for example, in our sexual orientation, we have genes that might make our... Um, give a vulnerability to not be as sensitive to testosterone. So it might be that a particular baby has this gene that makes it so if there's even a small shortage of testosterone on a particular day that they, it might not develop in a masculine way if it's a boy. It might develop in a feminine way instead or vice versa if it's a girl. And so we have all these traits in our head that are either feminized or masculinized, and everybody has some of both. Men tend to have more of the masculinized versions. Women tend to have more of the feminized versions. So if we're looking at the sexual orientation apparatus, a masculinized version is going to have an orientation towards females, and that will be a normal heterosexual orientation. And in the gender gender identity area, a masculinized gender identity, the person will feel like a man. If it's a feminized gender identity, the person will feel like a woman. If it's a feminized sexual orientation, the person will be attracted to men. So is that all making sense so far?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I want to ask too, this isn't just a human phenomenon, right? This, this runs across the entire, mam- the entire mammal spectrum, right? I mean, I mean yeah, this isn't exactly. just something that humans deal with.
1: Yeah, this isn't controversial at all. I mean, every animal has to have some sort of sense of what gender they belong to, whether they consciously acknowledge it, we don't know. But a cat, you know, a cat, cats, male cats do male things. And there's part of this brain kind of (laughs) helps them figure out, you know, which... What the male things are and what they should do and, and gives them drives to do those male things and, and one of the, a male cat, one of, they also have an area that is their sexual orientation and cats don't have particularly, um, very many examples of homosexual orientations, although a lot of species do, but even straight people are, a heterosexual cat is going to have an area of its brain that's tells it what kind of stuff it likes. And it likes the smells that are given off by a female cat, especially when they're in heat. And so, and the female cats have an interest in male cats when they are in heat. So yeah, and this is programmed in the same way because they are just like the humans. They could have been male or female and it's only the hormone levels that are present while they're developing in the uterus that sends it in one direction or the other. And it just turns out that in humans, there's a much bigger variety of how it turns out for any one person. So we have the majority of people who are pretty heterosexual, and the most women end up with a very female sexual orientation, which is towards males. And most males have a very male sexual orientation, which is towards females. But what happens is, in humans, there's a pretty broad curve, and so you also have Males with a very feminine sexual orientation, which is towards males, and then you've got just as many with the fall in between. And with women, you get a lot who are in the in-between range, and even though most women are primarily have a feminine sexual orientation, meaning they're oriented towards males, but there's this set who are, have a masculine orientation, which would be oriented towards females, and I'm just using these terms to try and be clear. It's kind of gets confusing, but um, the point is, is it's the hormone levels that really dictate that.
0: So, I guess one of the things I want to I want to kind of I guess uh, pull out of here is if we were to look at you know. There's been these, these discussions about, let's say, there's a thousand births, and 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 what percentage of those would I, as they grow up, would identify themselves as LGBT? Um, and I think the stats show somewhere around like six percent. Is that right? Um,
1: that's pretty controversial, is, but I think yeah, I know this
0: is fuzzy because um, there's a I think
1: I think that's a useful number to use. That there's a good three percent who are primarily. L or G and another 3% that are, or more that are in the bisexual. But as homophobia gets lower and lower, that bisexual group just gets bigger and bigger because more people are admitting it. So the statistics are likely higher in real life than people are identifying. But I kind of think as a scientist, I'm not gonna identify people by how they identify themselves, because that's not quite useful. I have to have a construct of who has, you know, and I don't know what I want to call it. I don't want to call them gay or lesbian. I think going back to the term that most gay people hate, which is same-sex attracted, is who's going to be same-sex attracted is going to be based on this sexual orientation apparatus, um, or who will be opposite-sex attracted will be also based on this apparatus. And so, yeah, we're going to end up with this kind of spectrum, as we see. But yeah, there's a significant number, like you say, three percent, possibly and, and five. Whatever,
0: yeah, and whatever that percent is, I guess what I'm saying is that it's it's not just a human issue, right? You you go to essentially across the any animal within the within the the mammal group, right, are going to have these same type of processes going on, and there's going to be a similar percentage.
1: Of, of no, these? Not- I, I would I would not say that. I would say okay. that there's lots of examples in the animal kingdom, but they have different percentages. Um, we can't assume. You know, I know that. You know, it gets complicated to talk about the evolution, but the reason it's present in a species would likely be based on issues of natural selection that are specific to that species, and so some species the genes are going to get really, really good at making sure that every member of that species is oriented towards the correct, you know, in quotation marks, um, objects so that they'd be more likely to reproduce. It would really take a social species like ours to get any advantage of having um, homosexual members within that species. And uh, so I think we'd likely find that only that homosexualists probably only present in social species. That would be my guess. But it's certainly not present in every species. It's it's highly variable. Um, But yeah, the process would be the same. Even in a species that has virtually no homosexuality, they would still undergo a differentiation because the brain either becomes male, masculinized, or feminized. And so that apparatus in the brain will do the same thing. It'll either become masculinized or feminized.
0: No, and I'm glad you you corrected that because one of the things I'm just trying to point to is that one of the assumptions we sometimes make as we're as we 're delving into this issue and thinking about those around us, especially if we you know for the first time ever find out that a friend or a relative um, has come out as gay, is when we have these kind of religious positions that we 're holding one of the first you know natural assumptions we make, which i 'm just trying to show as being maybe not necessarily a true assumption or an accurate assumption, is to assume that that this is just a human thing, and that that this human being, whoever that person is, is choosing this this uh, attraction, but the reality is that this is a biological thing that does extend beyond humans and goes into to various species
1: right, and that is definitely accurate um, both mammals, birds, even insects they 've been shown situations where they end up having You know, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to exactly say a sexual orientation, but you can certainly say that every mammal and every bird has an apparatus in their brain that drives their sex, who they are going to be sexually interacting with. And so, yes, every animal in that, by that definition, has a sexual orientation that has to develop in in a parallel way. And, yes, a lot of animals, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of species that they've observed that form have different variations of homosexual behavior or same sex relationships. One thing I want to say though is that um, there's different reasons why a sexual orientation or gender identity apparatus might not proceed in the expected direction. Why a male or a female might not masculinize or feminize as expected. Um, and we kind of assume that it's hormone levels, but it really comes down to this. It comes down to an interaction of the genes and the environment. And when I say environment, I mean the intrauterine environment. And what I mean mostly mean by the environment is indeed the hormone levels. So what happens is we have a gene, actually more than one gene. There's lots of genes that code for the different parts of the sexual orientation apparatus. And so... We know that the homosexuality is genetic because it clearly runs in families. It's been proven that it runs in families. It's been proven by twin studies that it's genetic. So we know that it's genetic, but we also know that genetics doesn't sum it up and that it's also environmental. And so what we can sort of ascertain from this is that the genes basically code for a predisposition. So you might have what I would call the gay gene, but I don't ever want to say gene because there's probably a few. You might have some genes that give you the potential to become gay, but it will only have that outcome if the environment triggers it. And so the gene might be such that it gives a vulnerability that it doesn't particularly respond to testosterone or in the case of a female who has becomes homosexual, that they're... Their genes give them a high sensitivity, so even tiny amounts of testosterone might trigger it. So that's one thing that could affect it, the sensitivity of to the testosterone. Other things might be maternal factors, something about the mother. She might be secreting a lot of testosterone or more than usual herself and throwing it into the mix, or she might be inhibiting it. And there's even epigenetics, which is a process where genes are kind of activated or deactivated once again by factors that are likely present in the maternal environment. And so we can have genes get activated in one twin but not the other that end up making their sexual orientation apparatus go one way and the other and the other. Um, So there's all these mechanisms that could create the variety that we see. And another thing I want to point out is that it's not just this one area that's masculinized or feminized. We know that the whole brain is masculinized or feminized. We see differences in the sizes and the weights of different structures and in the relative dominance of one sphere or the other. And so if we have a tendency, a general trend that... um, the testosterone isn't quite impacting areas in some male brains. Yes, in the sexual orientation, they might have a gay outcome, a homosexual outcome. But this same process that affected that area might affect other areas in some children, but not others. So if there's these maternal factors that are inhibiting testosterone in one area, like your sexual orientation area, it might also hit your gender identity area. So some of these boys are born with a homosexual orientation, but in the end, they find out that they have a gender identity they identify as female, and so that person is trans. But then there's lots of other areas that might be masculinized or feminized, and it's tricky to talk about this because we don't like to put men or women in a box, but I think it's common sense and everyone realizes that there are tendencies for different traits in men and women, different interests that are beyond just culture, that are intrinsic. Um, We all know little boys are more into rough and tumble play, little girls are more into social interactions from a very very early age and these differences are programmed in the brain and they grow up and men are stereotypically more interested in auto mechanics and the engines of helicopters and women are stereotypically more interested in ballet and figure skating when they watch the Olympics. And these, yes, there's cultural things at play, but these are also trends and the trends aren't 100%. You know, for every single characteristic, you have examples of, you know, you have this stereotypical male trait and you have men who don't fit the trait at all. And the same with women, you have stereotypical female traits and there's some that don't. But what happens is that Everyone has a, has a mosaic once again, but you would kind of guess that gay men might have, since their sexual orientation area was feminized, they might have other areas feminized. And I kind of have this assertion that ball throwing is one of those areas. I'm a, you know, I have a sexual orientation that is more feminized because I'm a homosexual. I'm a, I, it's towards men, but I also have the ball throwing skills that are not common among Men, I just don't throw a ball effectively. And it's, you know, it's not because of my strength, you know, I'm a very athletic person, but I just could never have the same kind of coordination that made me an effective ball thrower. And so I don't think anyone studied that, but I think most people have observed that a lot of girls have trouble throwing a baseball and there's a lot, there's several who throw them really good and most boys kind of naturally throw them correctly and, and there's some who don't. And, uh, the stereotypically among gay men, there's a lot of us who just cannot throw a baseball. But if you know very many gay women, you know, they're just making up the softball teams. And so, you know, this is just all conjecture on my part, but this just kind of an illustrative point in a way that's very annoying to, because it's, um, you know, going into stereotypes about, um, what men and women are good at. But there, yeah, you could just say there's a, area of the brain around throwing baseball that it might also get feminized in these gay men. And it might get masculinized in these gay women, but there's certainly straight women who get it masculinized too, or there's certainly straight men who can't throw a baseball and their apparatus is feminized, or it might be that their gene to start out with was just never, they were never going to be a good ball thrower no matter what gender they were, or there's others who just no matter what gender they are, they're going to be an amazing ball thrower because of their skills of their, you know, the genetic, they were given from, the genes they were given from both parents. So... There's just other traits, and that's why you might see other stereotypical things that are associated with gay people or lesbians. That is due to this common biology, and there might be a different rhythm that in the speech that might seem feminine for some gay men. But once again, there's also straight men who might have that. Um, so I just want to point out, point that out, that this is. A similar thing that's going on in the brains that when you have a person who, you know, years later says, well, I'm gay or I'm lesbian, they say, well, this is part of me. And that just might be in them, this complex of this, their feminine side, but... There's certainly other gay men who have virtually no other feminine traits, right? They're just hyper masculine. And so it might just be that for those men, they only have that one area, just the sexual orientation apparatus feminized, but all the rest of them, you know, are as masculine as can be. So there's just really a huge variety, but these processes that go on in the sexual orientation part of the brain really go on in a lot of parts of the brain.
0: Excellent. And maybe now would be a good time to kind of jump in, in, and start talking about some of the specific ways in which this, this biology expresses itself and, and maybe run us through. I know that recently you and, and Dr. William Bradshaw were on Mormon Matters and, and, the two of you went through some of the ways in which this biology is expressed and, and wonder maybe if you could hit on at least some of those, maybe just the, the high points of some of those that, that give us, give us an understanding that these things truly are on some level biological.
1: Yeah. What I'm gonna, what I'll do is I'll just mention, you know, some of the things we do know and how that sort of supports the narrative I just gave. So, you know, is it genetic? Well, yes, we know it's genetic. How do we know? Because they've done familial studies. They found some very interesting things. Male homosexuality runs in families. Female sexual homosexuality also runs in families, but not necessarily the same families. So. My family might have both sets of genes because I have a family that has both. But, but statistically, if you are a gay man, you're likely to have more gay male relatives. If you're a gay female, you're likely to have more gay female relatives. And what's interesting in the case of gay men is that there seems to be an X link to it because it tends to run more commonly in the maternal side. That implies that there's a gene on the X chromosome that is more likely to play a role. So we're seeing that. Some really compelling evidence towards the idea that it's genetic is twin studies. They have managed to identify lots of identical twins, compare them to fraternal twins, and they find that there is a huge agreement with one twin or the other that kind of proves that it's genetic. What that means is if one twin is gay, the other twin is way more likely to be gay than you would expect by chance alone. In this case, it's 50%. Um, that makes you think that that homosexuality is 50% genetic and 50% environment. And when I say environment, I mean intrauterine environment. But the point is, is that kind of study kind of proves to us that it's both genetic and environmental. Um, The twin studies is also compelling because they even, it even worked for twins raised apart, but when you go to fraternal twins who don't share as much DNA, they still have a higher chance that if one of them is gay the other one is, but it's not nearly as high, it's more similar to what any brother would have, because any gay man has more higher chance of having a gay brother. And so if it's a fraternal twin, it would be a similar chance. So even though they're raised together, the the correlation is proportional to how much DNA they actually share. And this is also true for females. Um, so we just have this really compelling evidence that, yes, it starts out genetic.
0: And I should throw, too, one of the ones that I, I find interesting is the the one on finger length, which which I knowing several people who um, are gay or homosexual, they you know they they are much aware, you know, just as much aware of some of these podcasts that talk about these issues, the studies that are out there, and and we've had conversations before, and, and some of them fall into these these factors where they've got a certain finger longer than another. Maybe talk for just a moment about that as it's it 's another one I think, that points to ways in which this biologically expresses itself, that points to it being more than just um, happenstance, I guess.:
1: Yeah, what the finger length is is you know i 'll describe that, but finger length is on this long list of things that we can identify where homosexual men have a characteristic that is more typical of women statistically. So what that means is that there's a trend. It's certainly not all homosexual men. So, and that homosexual women have the characteristic that's more masculine. And what we find is that there's characteristics that are physical, very much in the body, like the fi- these finger lengths that we'll talk about. And there's a bunch that are in the brain. And the list is incredibly long. But let's talk about the finger length, because it's it is super interesting. Um, I have a hard time remembering which finger is longer, but I think I got it down. There's This is a situation where there's a male-female dimorphism. In other words, statistically, women are likely to have their index and ring finger be the exact same length, statistically. Men, statistically, have a shorter index finger. So what's interesting is that the gay men have a more feminine outcome on their finger links. So they're kind of in between the men and the women. So they have um, statistically there's more gay men who have an equal ring finger to their index finger length, even though there's still some gay men who have the other and and I don't remember if that applies to lesbian women, but um, I think they also found a difference where the les the lesbians also ended up having a shorter index finger like the men. So What that tells us is that this is a, this is a physical characteristic, just like having male genitalia or female genitalia. This is another thing where our bodies responded to the hormones and gave us a difference. And it just so happens that they, we have this difference in our fingers between gay and straight people and we also have a difference in our brain. So that kind of implies that both of them are have a similar mechanism, which is likely the presence or absence of testosterone. Um, so finger length is a great one, but I also think there's a lot of really compelling things. Here's another interesting one. There's, um, there's just all these different areas in the brain. For example, they found that the trying to find this. There's this area in the brain. This famous the INAH three that. Um, is smaller in women than in men, but gay men have this area that's a similar size to women. We also have the um, relative um, dominance of one sphere, the right side of the brain to the left side. The women have a much more better balance. Like their index and ring finger, they also have a, a more equal in the left and right with more interconnections between the two. And they found that there's a trend towards this in gay men. So we have these real structures. Then we also find some functions, some clear brain functions that also are different in gay men, where it resembles more straight women. And one of those is the startle response. Um, they test an eye blink after you hear a loud sound and both sexes respond with an eye blink when they hear a loud noise, kind of surprisingly. But what happens is if there's a second loud noise shortly after, the men don't respond as much, whereas the women do. In other words, the first one kind of desensitizes them and they don't get startled again. But the women get just as startled on the average. These are always on the average because there's always exception. And they found that um, it's would be masculinized or feminized in other words, the lesbians would be more likely to have a masculine response, and the gay man would be more likely to have a a feminine response in something that 's clearly a function of an apparatus in the brain so once again, we have an evidence that you have this other apparatus like ball throwing that I gave. but here we have really measured things like the startle response, where the gay men have a feminine Response: the lesbian women have a masculine response that indicates that they have another area of the brain besides just the sexual orientation apparatus. They have yet another apparatus that is, on the average, impacted probably by the same sex hormones as the testosterone or the androgens or the estrogens. And so these all give more and more weight to that idea that this is all happening in uterus. And then they also you know, Bill Bradshaw talked about some great things in the recent podcast we did. And um, one of these is the ways that we um, organize and remember things. And, you know, they had tests where you could fill a table with different objects and remove some of the objects and try to remember which ones were removed and who notices better. And it turns out women tend to females tend to outperform males on this particular one and the gay men perform like females on this particular one they they outperform the this the heterosexual men on this particular test where women tend to outperform men and so this is just one more example and there's just bunches of those there's some really um other um brain functions that are just um more obviously connected to our sexual orientation apparatus, one of those is the effect of pheromones. We have they have found that um, males and females respond to pheromones of the other sex. Now, what's a pheromone? A pheromone is a chemical that's produced in your sweat that has a smell that you don't notice, but you do respond to it. And we all know that animals can smell who's in heat. You know, your cat can smell when the the male can smell when the female's in heat. Well, humans have these kind of pheromones. They don't function quite as strongly as they do, and we don't recognize them, but they are there, and they do play a role in attractions. And they found that females have a response to chemicals that are derivatives of testosterone found in a male's sweat. And... Men, most males have a response in their brain that can be measured to the pheromones that are produced by females. But the gay men, the men with a sexual orientation that is homosexual, their brain, and this can be measured by imaging studies, that their brains respond to the male hormones and that homosexual females, that their brains respond to the female hormones. And then they can even, you know, these studies are are more on the lines of what you know those Kinsey studies used to do, things like this. But you know, to actually respond, um, test the response, the erotic response, and they have done that. You know, they show a male or a female um, images. You know, all these studies they've studied men more than women because sexism exists throughout um, throughout all this. But they have found that. If they test males, they have an area lit up in their brain, you know, and this is not under voluntary control and it just lights up when they see images of females or particularly erotic images of females. But the gay men, you know, they clearly light up only when you show erotic images of males. And then there's a you know, there's in between responses that might be um described as bisexual response, right? But these are all things that um kind of clearly show that it's something that's going on in the brain and outside of consciousness. And so, you know, those are a bunch of examples. And I hope, you know, if you're super interested in these, there's... I don't know if we talked about all the ones that you found interesting, Bill, but, um, you know, that's one where listening to Bill Bradshaw's podcast, you'll get a lot of examples. Or you can simply go to Wikipedia. There's some really good articles right there in Wikipedia. Um, If you just... Enter, you know, sexual differentiation, homosexuality. Let me see if I can even give you a a better link. There's one called Biology and Sexual Orientation that gives quite an excellent list. Um, I also, if um, any of you hold your breath for this, but Kendall Wilcox um, is working on a film called Far Between, and he is also going to do some amount of education. He's putting together some really good information about this, too, so look forward to that as well.
0: The the one that I found really interesting, Dr. Bradshaw called it complete androgen sensitivity syndrome. Right, that that there are people out there whose whose DNA is male DNA, and yet they are physically the outward appearance of them is female, and they are also behaviorally skewed towards um, being attracted towards uh, men and having a typical you know, female attraction, right?
1: Right. Yeah. There is this. Um, there's different conditions where there's just a complete. You know, the testosterone might be pleasant, present, but because of a genetic um, something that happened to that person's gene, they just have no sensitivity to the testosterone. So their bodies evolve and they look female. With there's just some things a doctor could figure out that not everything's normal about their internal genitalia, but they look like females and they feel like females because their brains, the gender identity of their brain developed in a feminine way and their sexual orientation developed in a fem- feminine way. So yes, when these people have no sensitivity to testosterone, they turn out to have a fem- typical female sexual orientation even though they have the XY chromosome. And there's a similar parallel thing with females. There's a thing called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a condition that is genetic that results in really high levels of androgen during fetal development. And those girls end up to be highly likely to have a homosexual sexual orientation as adults. Um, And so obviously there's going to be some variability on that one because it's not 100% like this androgen sensitivity syndrome. But it's enough to kind of demonstrate that, yeah, there's a big role of hormones in the outcome with your sexual orientation. I uh, mean, sort of, yeah. Well, to take it even a bit further, um, you know, if you are wondering if, you know, your environment after birth can impact the sexual orientation, there's a really compelling study that. Studies that show you really can't impact it after birth, and that's based on um, genetic you know people who have the genetic sex of male, which is an XY chromosome, but for some reason they didn't have fully developed um, genitalia at birth. And so for a long time we had these boys were born with, and for some reason their genitalia wasn't fully developed. Or else they had a circumcision accident which damaged their penis and so the doctors for decades were making a decision. Oh well we can turn this fetus into a, I'm sorry, we can turn this baby into a girl. We can just remove the genitalia and eventually form a vagina as they get older. We can raise them as a girl. We can treat them as a girl. They're gonna be a girl. And this was seemed like a great idea because then they could have a normal life and they would not never care that their penis was removed. Well, what they found out was that this was a disaster because virtually every one of these um, boys who were operated on that and were raised as girls did not feel like girls. They felt like boys and an even higher percentage had a homosexual orientation. I mean, they didn't have a homosexual orientation. They were oriented towards... Females, because they really were boys, even though nobody told them that, and they weren't being raised as boys, and they, often nobody knew that they were boys, but they were, you know, they virtually always ended up with the orientation towards girls. And so, it was obvious that their rearing wasn't impacting. And of course there was one or two who, you know, they were oriented towards boys, and that would make sense, because if you have 50 of them, there's gonna be a couple who had everything turned out normal, they would have been homosexual. And so these, you know, a couple of these, you know, were okay with their sexual orientation. You know, it, it was more convenient for them because they were attracted for boys. But the vast majority, you know, the other 95%. And so this is a really compelling argument that you just can't impact it. After birth, um, even though we don't know exactly when the critical stage of when it's developed, we just can't find any evidence that there's a way of impacting it after birth.
0: Right, right. And so it, it seems like maybe kind of tor- heading towards kind of a wrap up. The idea is that while there's only uh, a relatively small percentage of of people who are affected in in these ways that we're talking about with these kind of biological factors and things going on with the development of the of the, the fetus and the embryo state and, and all that's going on, that while it may be a small percentage that are atypical, that at the same time there is a multitude of reasons and factors and things going on that could all be somewhat of a causation to these I, I think sometimes it's there's this simple mindset to try and put our finger on the one thing that's causing this And the reality is that this could be a multitude of things that are going on, right?
1: More than could. It is definitely, you know, there's nobody who thinks there's only one pathway towards a homosexual outcome. So when we talk about a gay gene, there's nobody who really knows about it who thinks there's just going to be one gay gene. There's probably different pathways that arrive there with different mechanisms, but probably there's common pathways there might be the most common pathway you know we don't know what it is yet but i would guess that we'll find that there is a common pathway with a certain you know we could say that a certain set of genes that might make you highly likely or a certain set of epigenetic factors um and we you know i i want to go back and just tell you one more super interesting study is the older sibling study um the the um There's a tendency that if you have an older brother, that for every older brother you have, you have a higher percentage chance of having a homosexual orientation. So in other words, if you're the oldest son, you might only have a 2% chance of turning out with a homosexual orientation. But for each older brother you have, if you're the second son, you have a 30 to 50% higher chance. So it might go up to 3%. If you're the third son, it goes up another. So it might go up to 4% if you're the third son, up to 5% if you're the fourth son. And so this is strongly indicative of, once again, an epigenetic factor that is kind of controlled by what's going on in the woman's body who's carrying the child. Um, And we don't know exactly what would, trigger that, but it might be some sort of immune response, you know, have a slight immune response against maleness in a woman's body. But anyway, it's an interesting mechanism. and It's an interesting thing that I just wanted to add to that because that's one, one more really compelling thing that shows us that, yeah, it is environmental, but no, it doesn't happen after birth. It's what happens in the interuterine environment
0: yeah yeah and it 's interesting too. I know you and Dr. Bradshaw talked on not just finger length but handedness and and that uh, you know if you're if you 're right handed or left handed and, and all these studies that have been done that show that there are significant enough differences to point to these things being being part of the outward expression of something else going on in this development and and maybe as we take a step back and kind of wind up here, um, Daniel, realizing that this is biological realizing that this isn't environmental. And again, as you point out, not talking environmental in the sense that, you know, some event happens to this person when they're 10 years old, but rather in the uterus um, that, that when this, this, you know, embryo or this uh, fetus is developing to, to understand that that is what's going on. And and I'm trying uh, my listeners are going to say, Bill, you're stammering and stuttering more than you have in any other episode. It's because this is such a sensitive topic. I think for all of us, especially when we're all coming together from various perspectives and trying to figure out what kind of questions to ask and where we go from here. And so I want to throw kind of one last thing at you, which is knowing that this is biological, knowing that this is environmental in the sense of child or uh, uh, fetus development, realizing that and then taking a step back and realizing that there m- might be one person in your ward that you don't even know is, you know, LGBT but that they are and you certainly have people in your stake who who are LGBT and and you may not know it but but maybe this should cause us just to step back and to look at this issue with a lot more sensitivity hopefully empathy but at the very least sympathy for the the difficult trial it is the the challenge that it is to to grow up in the church and to have people say things and do things that at times will give you the message that that on some level you're less than, which which I don't think any of us want, as we try to emulate the savior and how we treat others. Any thoughts from you kind of wrapping up on on what your hope would be as all of us walk away from this and thinking this through and realizing what's going on here and, and what that should mean for the way in which if anything, that we just do one step better at treating others. Yeah. Um
1: You know, I think I'd just like to talk about what, you know, I talked about this sexual orientation apparatus, you know, and what's going to be the experience of somebody based on their sexual orientation apparatus. Well, if you're heterosexual, what it means is, you know, when you're, when puberty hits and you start getting a surge of hormone activity, this kind of awakens in you this intense interest in the object of your sexual desire, right? So young 12-year-old girls and young 12-year-old boys are, you know, they suddenly have an obsession with the opposite sex if they're heterosexual. And they start to create dreams around this. They start to obsess about this. They look forward to dating. They want to be around the person. They want to, you know, they start getting dreams of having a relationship. And this is... Something that's seen as normal, right? They, you know, they're, this is endorsed by everyone around them. They see that their parents did exactly that. They have role models. They, they grow up with this vision. Their church tells them that's wonderful. The thing you want to do more than anything in the world is exactly what you should do. You should go out and fall in love and marry someone and have sexual relationships and, and so it gives them this, you know, this normal path to go on. And this is all because This is driven by their sexual orientation, which is, in their case, a heterosexual orientation. But you have this gay person. You know, the sexual orientation is not just one thing. It's different for every person, but you have people with a range of orientations. I mean, if they have a homosexual orientation, they might have some broadness to it or or not. They might have some amount of bisexual orientation or they might not. But what happens is they get hit at puberty um, Sometimes sooner, with the same drives, all of a sudden they have this they 're hit really strong with strong desires, but in this case, towards the same sex, and they want to be around people of the same sex they 're ex- excited, they get nervous, they get crushes they they start to develop dreams and fantasies and desires for the future, but it 's highly confusing because they 're told it 's wrong they 're told they 're bad they 're not given role models for how to do that um, they 're told they have to do this thing they absolutely don 't want to do that makes the thought of it makes them want to throw up sometimes, which is they need to get together with someone of the opposite sex and have eventually have sexual relations and a lot of them you know there 's certainly some who can and certainly people who are bisexual who might be able to do that or might not throw up at the idea but there 's plenty who just the very idea of it just you know, throws huge knots in their stomach, but they're told that this is the only way that God will love them or that their families will love them or that they can get ahead. And so it's, you know, they're, they're having this sexual orientation that is, they're being thrown in position where it's really, really dis, you know, a huge dissonance because of the messages are given from around them. And so that just leads to a huge amount of despair. So, you know, when you talk about choice, it's hard to say that's very relevant. Everyone chooses what they do, but, um, a lot of homosexual people certainly cannot choose heterosexuality. They might be able to choose, you know, to have, mar- enter a marriage and try to perform sexually or to be celibate, but, but they aren't ever going to be able to choose to fall in love in the same way that's driven by this innate attraction that heterosexual people enjoy and so yeah we have to look at that compassion but really understanding what they're going through and when you talk about choice it's just really distracting you from really what is choice you know i said i wanted to return to the discussion of choice but who chooses their appetites who chooses whether or not they like broccoli i mean you can sort of you know try to eat things you don't like and maybe you'll acquire taste for them but you know Basically, it's intrinsic. Some people like broccoli, some people like onions, some people like garlic, some people like cilantro. I f- hate cilantro, and all these other. most people just think it's the greatest thing on earth, and it's this thing that just tastes like soap to me. And I eat it and eat it, and it still tastes like soap, and I just don't choose to like cilantro. I wish I liked it. I like Mexican food that has cilantro, but I just hate the cilantro and Indian food. And so we just can't say that these things are choices, these things... That are attractions, these things that are, you know, what drives us, what kind of relationships we want or what innate sort of desires we have. We can't call those. Um, Those things aren't choices. Um, Yeah, we choose what we do with that. But then we have to live with the consequences, and sometimes the consequences is this huge despair. Um, and a lot of people try to force themselves to live a life that's not in congruence with their sexual orientation, and it is really hard, really taxing, and leads to a lot of psychopathology. So we got to understand what we're asking of people and we got to understand how this thing that's innate to them is playing a role in what's going on. And for now to theirs, you know, they didn't choose it. It happened to them. They woke up to it. We wake up to our sexual orientation.
0: Right. Right. And, and I think you hit on it a few minutes ago. And first of all, I think you just hit a home run with, with what you just said. I think you connected all the dots and, This idea that within our faith we we teach our youth from a very young age what it means to live with God again and to to achieve the highest glory of what we what we deem the celestial kingdom, and yet these our gay brothers and sisters at a young age realize at their core that that their as you put it innate self is something different than that, and we ought to have compassion and understanding and empathy and. And a willingness to, to put our arm around these young people and to try and make sure that they've got as much of a support system as possible, um, so that they don't fall into the trap of, as you're putting it, uh, things that lead to, to depression and other, other, other horrible outcomes. And, and I just hope that if you're a parent listening or you're a brother or a sister or you're a bishop, um, or just a friend in, in the ward, that you might recognize that this issue is a lot more complex, I think, than, then we've phrased it for for many decades, and I think we just in the last maybe ten years are really beginning to kind of come to grips with with what's going on here and and what leads to to these things and the way we treat others what that leads to and Daniel Parkinson, I just want to say thank you for being on today and and I hope that uh this will be a podcast seen by my listeners as one that they want to you know hand out to to their friends and relatives who who may be Need need to at least be open to to being aware of of the complexity of this issue. Daniel, thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you very
1: much, Bill. And can I put in a plug for for um, the ldswalkwithyou.org videos that Please. I talked about at the beginning? Please,
0: by all means. Any, that and anything else that you wanna you want listeners to be aware of. Well, I want
1: people to, I want parents. To who are Mormon I want anyone who is Mormon to watch the videos of the experience of these parents it's ldswalkwithyou.org these are active LDS parents of LGBT Um, if you are a parent of an LGBT I also want to make sure you have reviewed the research done by Family Acceptance Project Google Family Acceptance Project look for the pamphlet review it review the research they've done um there's one that's written specifically for an LDS audience. Um, you can find that one there. They ask you to give an email when you download it. They'll just do one follow-up email. You don't even have to answer it. They don't add you to any list. So please get hold of that pamphlet. And those are my two main plugs.
0: Awesome. Daniel Parkinson, thank you again for your time. And uh, appreciate all you do to really help all of us kind of navigate this subject from a, a position of, of not trying to Push people off their, their beliefs, but rather to help us kind of all come together and to, to just take a deeper look at the complexity of this issue. Thank you so much.